Good morning. My name is Andy. My wife and I are over the students. I'm not Dan Marshall. Uh, so come back next week and hear the main guy if you're visiting. Glad you're here. In third grade, we had a recital and we sang Take Me Out to the Ball Game, and they had me up on the very top riser. And I had a little game I was playing with myself called See How Far I Can Hang My Heels Off the Back. And I had a little bit of success and thought, thought I'd press my luck and went a little further and said, take me out to the foot. And I dropped, climbed back up and there was a commotion and then we recovered. But man, we as humans, we will let the smallest amount of success go to our heads and make us cocky. Will we not? <laughs> uh, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter three and I'm going to tell you a little story from second Chronicles, but I'm going to skip around a little so uh, from chapter 26. So y'all just stay and wait for me in Genesis 3. We're going to take a break from First John today. And as I read this story about King Uzziah, just visualize in your mind this wave that goes up and up that's just about to crash. Second Chronicles 26 verse 3, Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, which is awesome because that, those were few and far between in those days. Everyone did as they saw fit, but he didn't. And Uzziah went out and made war against the Philistines. Moreover, Uzziah built fortified towers. And moreover, Uzziah had an army of soldiers, like over 300,000 armed to the teeth. And it goes into great detail. And in Jerusalem, he made war machines to be on towers, to shoot arrows and great stones down. And his fame spread far. You see him swelling up. His fame spread far for he was marvelously helped by God. I love that phrase, marvelously helped until he was strong. But contrast, here it comes. <laughs> Once he became strong, his pride destroyed him. He disobeyed the Lord his God. He entered the Lord's temple. The priests ran in after him to confront him. That is the responsibility of the priest. Leave the sanctuary for you have disobeyed. And it's like we talked about at the youth retreat that if you go into the presence of God, not the way that he has prescribed, it's like a gnat. Flying into the sun, unholiness into holiness. You're not going to make it. And so Uzziah, who had an incense sensor in his hand, kind of reminds me of Nadab and Abihu, just being where they don't belong. And with an incense sensor in his hand, he became angry when they confronted him. He bowed up instead of bowing down. And while he was ranting and raving at the priests, a skin disease appeared on his forehead. And they hurried him out of there. So King Uzziah lived in a separate house and suffered from leprosy until the day he died. He was marvelously helped by God, had some success, and it turned to pride that destroyed him. As it turns out, humans are horrible, undependable, unworthy vessels of power of authority, of success. It's like 
giving a toddler an egg on a spoon and saying, don't mess this up. Like, we're going to make a mess real quick of it as soon as he gives us a little bit of power. Yet, God makes this inexplicable choice to share his rule and authority with man. God has chosen to give you rule and power and authority and success and strength. So I want you to think about the different ways that God has given you marvelous help. How he has helped you marvelously. And are there ways that that has put you in a position where there is something within your grasp that you're tempted to take with your own hand, maybe something that doesn't belong to you or at least doesn't belong to you yet? Where has God shown you something that you're feeling tempted to take? What status, what pleasure? And the the question for us is, are we... Am I any different than Uzziah? Is there any hope for me when God makes me strong that I won't be destroyed by pride, that I won't become corrupted? Is there any hope for me? And the answer is, we have an incorruptible king. And that's not a word we use a whole lot, incorruptible, but it's an adjective that describes someone who cannot be caused to be dishonest or act immorally, no matter how much authority, power, success is given him. We have a king who is incorruptible. And so what I want to do is look at this pattern Through the scriptures, I'm going to show you in Genesis and hit a few high points. And I'm going to try for the most part just to move forward. And you'll just turn to your right and see this pattern of how we take power and mess it up. How we see and we take over and over again. And then we're going to see how Jesus breaks the pattern. And then we're going to see how does that do me any good? If I'm corruptible, he's incorruptible. How does that do me any good? So keep that in the back of your mind, the thing that you are tempted to see and take or be asking him as we're going through this. Maybe the spirit will reveal something to you. But we're gonna start in Genesis chapter three, verse six. So when the woman saw, underline that word saw, this is the first part of our pattern, that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took, underline that word took, she took of its fruit and ate and she gave, she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So see, it was her fault, it wasn't his fault. No, let's see. It said, look where the man was. He was there with her. So it it should have said, and the serpent said, did God really? And 
the man choketh the serpent and said, don't talk to my wife like that. That's what you should have said. So the, the man is at least as, if not more culpable, they both saw and took. And what it, was it that they were tempted with? Being like God. And what were they already? <laughs> like God. They were eating of the tree of life already in perfect fellowship with God. And yeah, maybe there's some future fullness or manifestation of that that they're having to be patient with, but Satan does what he always does. He offers a shortcut to reach out with your own hand and take what God has already promised to give you or has already given you. And their choice was to trust or take, and they took And the pattern continues, turn to Judges chapter 14, where we meet the ultimate bro, Samson. Chapter 14, Judges. Judges 14, 1. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw, there's our word again, underline that, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among our people that you must go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines. But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. She looks good to me. And so here's the pattern. He saw, and it doesn't say took, but it says get, which is just lazier than (laughs) take. So same pattern. And that repeats itself two more times with two other women that he saw and he took. Judges represents just another iteration of the rule and authority of God. First, it kind of is like a free-for-all, and then there's judges that are raised up and to rule, and that doesn't pan out very well. That's a time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and the, the book of Judges is, ends as just sort of a train wreck into a dumpster fire, and then Now we have another iteration of leadership in the kingdom era. And we meet our first king, King Saul. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel 15. And we're going to see this pattern continue. Samuel is a prophet that is sort of this link between, he was a prophet slash judge who's a link between the period of the judges and the kings. So he's a prophet speaking to this first king and he says, God has commanded you to wipe out the Amalekites, kill everyone and everything, leave nothing alive. And then it says in verse nine, first Samuel 15, verse nine, but... Saul and the people spared, this is a stand-in for the word took, spared King Agag and the best of the sheep 
and of the oxen and the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So they destroyed all the stuff that they didn't want to eat. Right? Do you see that? The despised, they destroyed, and they saved the best of the animals. And they're about to get busted. So keep in mind uh, that whenever they would make sacrifices to the Lord, they would burn up some and give some to the Lord, and then they would feast. It was like an awesome time of feast and fellowship with the Lord. So I always picture this next part in verse 13 of Saul approaching Samuel with a big old lamb shank in his hand uh, from the sacrifices that are going on saying, hey, Samuel, I did what you asked. Look what it says in verse 13. And Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, what then is this bleating of sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? He said, I obeyed the Lord. And he's like, oh, really? You wiped out everything? I, I hear some animals and, and I just see Saul like taking a lamb out of his teeth and going, no, no, no. We saved that stuff to give to God. And that's where the dialogue goes on where Samuel says, what does God delight in more? Sacrifice or obedience? It's better to obey than to sacrifice. And to listen is better than the fat of rams. And we see Saul's heart softens a little bit here. He feels somewhat sorry. And it says in chapter 15, verse 25, Saul says, Now, therefore, Samuel, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And the neighbor of yours that's better than you that's gonna receive it is who? It's King, King David, that's right. And so here this moment, the robe became a symbol of kingdom and authority. Do y'all, can y'all see the picture that he's, he's, Samuel's walking away from Saul saying, God has just taken the kingdom. He's done. You're done. And he's walking away. And Saul says, no. And at that moment, I wish I could have seen Samuel's face like as the Lord gives him this thought. And he goes, that's actually a perfect picture of what just happened. God has torn the kingdom away from you and is giving it to someone else. And it's tragic because again, in 1 Samuel 13, 13, it says, I would have established your kingdom forever, Saul. He already had it all, just like Adam and Eve. 
And the kingdom was torn and given to David in chapter 16. David is anointed as king. And now the question is, will the pattern continue with David? And here we see a little break. 1 Samuel chapter 24. We're going to see David, instead of take, he's going to trust the Lord. And he's going to have an opportunity to kill Saul and he spares Saul. So Saul is threatened by the young up-and-comer David, and he's in hot pursuit trying to kill David. So David and his men are running away, and then they, are, they find this random cave to hide in, okay? And then Saul is in hot pursuit. And I just imagine the chariots blowing and going. He's like, ah, hold on, pull over quick. And Saul says, I got I to gotta go use the cave. So he goes into a random cave. And here's how it plays out in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 3. And Saul came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now, David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of that same cave. And the men of David said to him, Hey, here is the day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand. And you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. And that word behold in Hebrew, it's this word, look, see. So he's being shown right here. It's within arm's reach to take. And then David arose and stealthily cut off the corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him. He had a sense of a guilty conscience because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. So you see with, first of all, with David's friends, that there's an assumption that if an opportunity presents itself, take it. There's an assumption there that if God gives you an opportunity, if you, if you can, you should. With no mention of asking the Lord. It it might be that this opportunity is an opportunity from God to trust God. And so he feels guilty. And does that seem strange? That always seems strange to me. He cut the robe because he's going to say later from the other hill, like, Saul, look, I could have killed you, but I didn't. Will you leave me alone? But he, he got the, before that, he gets the, he cuts it off and then he feels guilty. He feels guilty. He didn't kill him. He just cut the robe and he's already feeling guilty. And I wonder if, I wonder how many times he heard the story of Samuel saying to Saul, you're done and walking away and Saul going, wait. And Samuel saying, today the kingdom has been torn from you. And I wonder if when he grabbed that piece of robe, if you remember that and thought to himself, God has already promised to give me this. I have no business taking it for myself. I have no business messing with this guy. 
he had a sure promise from the Lord. And he refused. As it says in chapter 24, verse 6, he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up, finished his business, and left the cave and went on his way. So why did he not kill him? Because Saul is the Lord's anointed. He's the Lord's chosen guy. Yeah, he's trying to kill me, but God chose him. Now, wasn't David, just in chapter 16, David was also anointed, right? But he knows, even though this thing is his, there is some waiting required. There's some patience required for God to give it. And it's not for him to take. It's for him to wait and trust. And so Satan did like he always does. We call it a temptation from Satan or a test from the Lord. Either way, he had a choice to take his hand and take the life of his enemy and take the kingdom right then or to trust He saw and he did not take. He trusted. And I just want to ask you again to ask the Lord, what is the edge of the robe for you that's right there for you to take? That he's asking you, just trust me. And I love this story because finally a man refused to take what God had promised. And David's about to get a couple more opportunities to do the exact same thing. If you look in 1 Samuel chapter 25, David is going to trust God again and spare the life of this fool named Nabal. Because Nabal disrespects David and his men. David saddles up and they've all got swords, they're about to go kill him, but his Nabal's wife intercepts and talks him down and butters him up and talks about how God is, you're fighting the Lord's battles and the Lord is going to fight all your enemies so you don't have to get your hands dirty. And David sort of sighs and is like, okay, wow, thanks. Look at verse 33, 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 33 He says to this woman, blessed be your discretion and blessed be you, Abigail, who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. He was tempted and then she saved him. That was a close one. He almost saw and took vengeance, but he didn't. And now he has another opportunity in chapter 26. David is going to trust God by sparing Saul again. He has another opportunity to take the life of his enemy. Chapter 26, verse 7, so David and Abishai went to the army by night and there lay Saul sleeping with the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head and Abner and the army lay around him. So again, the assumption is here he is. You have an opportunity. Take it. Take. 
And so it says in verse eight, Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now, please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear and I will not strike him twice. But contrast, David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. Why? For who can put out his own hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? This is fascinating to me because even though David is the Lord's anointed, he's trusting in the timing of the Lord and says, not yet. It's not going to be my hand that gives it. And look at chapter 26, verse 10. Listen to David's assumption. David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him or His day will come to die or he will go down into battle and perish. He's like, I don't know how it's going to go down. I just know I'm not going to do it. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head in the jar of water and let's go. So I guess he's still going to mess with him a little bit. (laughs) I got your stuff again, but he's not going to kill him. I think he's trying to plead for some repentance there. But again, David saw and refused to take with his own hand. He's trusting God. And eventually, Saul does die, and the kingdom is torn and handed to David. And it's so sad, because it seems like almost as soon as David is appointed as king, the downward spiral begins. As soon as he gets real authority... He turns out to be human. Look at chapter 11, 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. King David is now crowned. And it says, in the spring of the year, The time when kings go out to battle. See that word go. This is the time when kings go. David sent. Not David went. It should say the time when kings go out to battle. David went. But it doesn't. David sent. Here he's already corrupted. And expressing itself in abdication of responsibility. David sent Joab and his servants. And look at verse two. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw. And here again, we're determining what's right and wrong based on what looks good to our own eye. And he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? He sees this woman taking a bath on the roof. Which begs the question, if she had been taking a shower, would she be called Shower Sheba? (laughs) That's neither here nor there. Verse. Sorry, verse four, (laughs) David sent messengers and, see the word, took, he took her. 
He saw and he took her. She came to him and he lay with her. Abdication leads to seeing, leads to taking, leads to adultery, leads to deception, leads to murder. And this is discouraging because we finally have a man who refuses to take what God has promised to give him. And then all of a sudden he too is corruptible. And this is worse than the other guys, right? Because he starts out good and he kind of gets your hopes up. And as it turns out, the best man is only a man at best, which means imperfect, corruptible. And we're left with our hearts crying out, Man, we need a better king. Wouldn't it be great if there was a better king? One who is incorruptible. Maybe, maybe David moved the needle a little bit and his sons will pick up where he left off and move the needle a little further and improve a little bit. 2 Samuel chapter 13 We have his son Amnon, who saw his half-sister, and he took her, raped her. Is there another son? Well, yeah. First Kings chapter 3, there's Solomon. And again, he got off. Solomon got off to a really good start. He's another one of these heartbreakers. Because God said, I'll give you one wish and one, ask for anything. And he asked for wisdom. And God said, wow, since you asked for wisdom, but not all these other things, I'm going to give you wisdom. And I'm going to give you riches and honor like nobody's ever had before and will. And as soon as he's given that, the downward spiral begins. And he's corrupted. And we see pretty quickly some clues of the downward spiral of Solomon and that we're supposed to read this as he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. Um, And put a little note there to go study Deuteronomy chapter 17 later. In Deuteronomy 17, you have the job description of a king. And this is where... God speaks through Moses. They've done the 40 years of wandering and they're about to go into the promised land. And God says through Moses, all right, look, when you get in there and you want a king, make sure it's one that God chooses. And here's what he's not supposed to do. He's not supposed to collect and pile up for himself gold. He's not supposed to collect and pile up for himself wives. And he's not supposed to collect and pile up for himself his, himself horses, which is like military might, power. So you see what he just ad- addressed there? Money, sex, and power. The vice is common to every human with any amount of authority ever. And he says, this is the job of a king. Don't pile those things up. Withstand the pride and the temptation to build those things up. And the one thing he is supposed to do is make his own copy of the Torah from the Levites. Make his own copy and then carry it with him everywhere he goes and read it and obey it all the days of his life. That's the job of a king. And so look at 
as soon as God gives Solomon all this wealth and honor and fame, look at what he does with it. 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 26. First Kings ten twenty six, And Solomon gathered together chariots and horses. In verse 27, the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. Verse 3 says he had... 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And this is what God was concerned about why he commanded that. They turned away his heart. Verse four, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And so God is going to then give a prophecy to a guy named Jeroboam where the prophet is going to tear up a robe in 12 pieces and say, one is going to go to the house of David, but you get the rest. And it's heartbreaking because even the good ones are corruptible. We need a better king, one who can handle all authority and not be corrupted. Are you ready to talk about Jesus? Turn to Matthew chapter 4. Jesus is going to see what God has already promised to give him, and he's going to trust. Matthew 4, 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed, he saw, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone. That's your stand in for the word trust. He saw and he trusted Now, question, what did Satan offer him, all the kingdoms? Was this a real offer? Was this something Satan had to give? John 12, 31 and 14, 30 call Satan the ruler of this world. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 calls Satan the God of this world. Ephesians 2, 2 calls him the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. 1 John 5, 19 says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Does Satan have authority over kingdoms? Ultimate authority? No. Limited authority? Yes. This was a real offer that was really tempting. Why did Jesus want all the kingdoms? Did he want it so that he could flex and go, I've got all the kingdoms? Uh, No. 
turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25. And I'm going to read two verses out of order because I think it makes it a little clearer what's going on. Verse 25 says, for Jesus must reign until God has put all his enemies and all the kingdoms under Jesus' feet. So, God is going to put all kingdoms under Jesus' feet. After that happens, verse 24, then comes the end when Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. And it ends with so that God may be all in all. So what's happening? Jesus is reigning at the right hand of the Father. God is giving all kingdoms and is going to give all kingdoms under the feet of Jesus so Jesus can put this whole kingdom together. And then Jesus can turn around and give the whole thing back to the Father. And then God will be all in all, the ultimate highest glory of God. So Jesus wanting All kingdoms is a lot like our desire for crowns in heaven, that we could throw them all at the feet of the Lord. He wants all kingdoms so he can give them to God for his ultimate glory. So this was tempting. The temptation was essentially Satan saying, Jesus, what if I could give you all those kingdoms? What if I could give you the crown without the cross? And it was right within his grasp to reach out and take. But he trusted the Father. Listen to Psalm 2 8. The Lord says to the Messianic king, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. They're already his. He doesn't have to take. He can trust his father and he trusts, he has a perfect faith in his father and in the promises of his father. Jesus refused to take with his own hand what God had promised. And God made good on his promises. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1.20 In the middle, it says, God raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet 
including us, the church. And then you can just listen to Philippians 2.9. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In Matthew 28.18, Jesus came up to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And not a bit of the weight of that authority and glory is making Jesus wobble. Finally, all glory and power and authority has found the right shoulders. No matter how much authority and glory and praise we put on his shoulders, it will not make him tremble or crumble under the weight. It's right. And this is what's crazy. As Hebrews 4.15 says, he was tempted in every way just like we were, but without sin. So he took every bit of it. And it wasn't that he wasn't tempted. It's just that he didn't sin. It's just that he trusted his father. Jesus is a better king. He trusts his father perfectly. So what good does that do me? If Jesus is incorruptible, I am corruptible, so what? What has God promised you? That's an important question, right? Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. And as you're turning there, I'm going to tell you what we're going to read here is going to give you a picture in your mind of just this really big bucket <laughs> of what God has promised you. Second Peter chapter 1 verse 3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Golly, okay, so just to review, what has he promised you? All things that pertain to life and godliness and a connection with the living God, with Christ himself, so that you are a partaker in his divine nature. That's a big bucket of stuff that he's given to us. It doesn't say you've been given all things, but there just might be a few things outside of that bucket that who cares? I've got all things pertaining to life and godliness. And I'm a partaker of the divine nature of God through Christ. So if your robe, the thing you're tempted to grab, the something you're, you're tempted to take that's not already yours, uh, it's it's there's one of three reasons why that thing that you're tempted to take isn't already yours. It's either not in that bucket of things that are for life and godliness, and we need to not we need to let the Lord refine our desires to not want that, or to stop believing lies that we want that. It's beyond the awesome pale. Or that thing is already yours and you don't realize it. 
I mean, I feel like where this applies most is whenever in the realm of sexual temptation, where we want to reach out and take because there's some sort of pleasure that I want to grab right now on my phone or with another person. And I'm thinking, man, it's right there. I just want to take it. And you can say, man, God's going to give that to you someday. Uh, It's not, he's already given it to you. You just got to wait till marriage. But it's actually even better than that. The, the, what you already have underneath what you're longing for. To be desired and wanted and intimately known is already yours. So if you're wanting to grab something, it might be that you already have the root that you're looking for in shallow, sad counterfeits. Or it might be that this thing that you're reaching for is already yours, but you just have to wait for it. Like complete resurrection. Complete conformity of the outer man to the inner man. So the question is, will you trust or will you take? And you say, well, how can I? What hope do I have? This is the only time I'm going to ask you to turn back the other way. And then we're going to end here. Colossians 1, 27. You say, I am, that's great that he's incorruptible, but I am corruptible. What hope do I have? Colossians 1, 27. In the middle of that verse, you'll see the word mystery. This mystery. He's speaking of the gospel. A mystery is something that's first concealed and then later revealed. And the mystery is this. Christ in you. That's your only hope of glory. <laughs> Christ in you. Verse 28 says, Him we proclaim. We proclaim Jesus in you. This is the mystery that sets you free and gives you hope. The incorruptible king in you. And it's why Paul says in the last phrase of verse 29, the way I struggle is with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. The incorruptible king abides in you and works within you. That means you don't have to make the weak, immoral, self-exalting, self-protecting choice to take ever again. Because of him who is our hope. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our incorruptible 
holy, holy, holy king. We honor you. We worship you. We praise you. We ask that you would dethrone the lies in our heart of the things that we think we are longing for, that we think are going to make us happy, that we think we need to reach out and grab for ourselves. And Lord, our only hope is to put our eyes on you, Jesus. You will never fail. You always trust your Father perfectly. And let us believe that you live in us. Let us believe that crazy mystery that Christ, you are in me. Working and willing to your good pleasure. We believe. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.